This is Lise Aaron, author of Matilda Empress, joined by my friend, Janice Lee, author of The Piano Teacher and The Expatriates. Thank you so much, Janice, for agreeing to do this. No, I'm so happy to talk books and writing and reading with you. Your books, they're both novels of manners in, in a way, and, and, and so is mine, even though um, they're all, all three books are set in, in vastly different times. I mean, I really love writing about a time that, that isn't my own. And I know you've done that and not done that. Do you have a favorite? Well, now that you've done both, do you feel like writing the past or writing the present is, is more fruitful for you? They were both completely different kind of animals. And I'd be curious to hear what your experience was like, because your book was so historically accurate and researched and, and rich. You know, when I was writing my first book, The Piano Teacher, which which was set in World War II Hong Kong, I didn't know a lot about Hong Kong at the time. I had grown up there, but I was born in the 70s, and um, I didn't know about Hong Kong in the 50s and the 40s. And so I sort of just immersed myself in the library and read all that I could find. I read the most boring government, you know, civil documents. I read newspapers. I wanted to know about things like how much things cost, what sort of dishes people were eating, because I thought that was the kind of thing that gave a lot of texture to a book. So I spent a lot of time in libraries reading about that. And then after that, I sort of just tried to forget it all, because in, in a way, the story of the people was more important to me than the actual historical context. Did you find that, that your, your book was more about character in the end than about the historical context you set it in? Well, I had to remember to make that true <laughs> for the reader's sake. I, I totally agree with the sort of preparation that you did. And I feel that I did the same thing, even though I was uh, thinking about the Middle Ages. But I, I had to know what exactly was for dinner. I had to know what kind of wood was burning in the grate. I had to know what the music sounded like. I, I, it pained me to get any of that wrong. wrong. I, I had to know, you know, what made a good poem and, and what made a woman admire another woman. I had to know everything and, and, and to get myself to stop finding things out um, and to remember that I had a story I wanted to tell about imaginary characters, even though I wanted all the things about their lives to be true. That was hard for me. Um, maybe I should have just been a historian or something, but I, I think at the end of the day, when it came to editing, that was the moment when you, I stepped back from the research and I saw that the story again had to be foremost in my mind so that the readers would care about it. And it's interesting for me because my cover, where I sort of tried to have it both ways by having um, a, contempt, you know, a photograph from our own time of a woman in a sort of ageless outfit that's very evocative of the Middle Ages, but very but even more importantly, true to sort of the emotional arc of my heroine, that cover, while many people are drawn to it, also other people feel like, well, it's not historically accurate. And I'm thinking, well, it's accurate for the emotional life of the character. So that's what I was going with. But it's interesting to see people's response, you know, when they come to my cover. I mean, did you feel when you chose your covers that what kind of work did you think the covers had to do, the artwork? Well, I don't think visually at all. So whenever they ask me, do you have any ideas for your cover? I very rarely have any good insight for that. Um, 
So, but luckily they have these wonderful people who do the covers for you. And so when they gave me this one, which is, you know, the back of a woman, I, th I feel very strongly that for my books, I don't want to see their faces. So for me, it was, you know, a picture of a, a woman looking at a photograph of someone and it's unclear what she's thinking, but there's some, some a little bit of melancholy in there. It just captured the mood that I wanted. And it, you know, she's wearing this crochet top that seems pretty timeless, like you were saying, it could be today or, or not. Um, but it just captured the mood of what I was trying to accomplish in the book, so it worked for me. And then they had a little border um, that was sort of, I guess, Asian. Um, but, you know, I'm not good at visuals, so I don't, you know, I know what I like when I see it, I guess is the best way to put it. They showed me a bunch of covers, and, and then this one was by far the one that I most connected with. Um, so that um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it sort of brings up the uh, the the cover issue brings up a big the bigger issue, which is when you're writing your book, are you writing it? You know, how much can we hope to capture a reader just with the cover or to write a book that might be chosen? We hope for as a book club book or you know, to what extent do we want to attract readers for the wrong reasons or the, as well right. as the right. And right. I think, you know, how do we want to be literary writers? Do we want to be best-selling authors? How, how do you negotiate that? Hopefully both. Even when it comes to a cover, <laughs> right, even comes to a cover, how, what message is the cover say, setting, sending? Is it saying this is a serious book? Right. Or this is, this is a book for you. Don't be scared off. <laughs> it's uh, funny because I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with publishers about, you know, what sells in their particular country. Um, and with my American publisher, which is Viking, I've always been so in tune with them. They, they always produce a cover that I completely agree with. And I, I think if I were the reader, I would want to read this book because, you know, I, I know the kind of reader I want. But I have to say in other countries, I'm completely at sea. And some of the, the covers I come up with completely flummoxed me but I have to trust them that that's what the people in that country are responding to um for my second novel the expatriates um I loved the cover that they came up with my hardcover it was sort of a cityscape that was dark and then there was one house that was illuminated in it, in it. and that just was the exact right mood that I wanted to convey but in the end it ended up being quite dark. I think it was darker in, in the actual printing than the, the one that we had seen. And I think in the end actually prevented people from seeing it. Um, and I think in the end that did end up being maybe not the best choice because I remember once I was in a bookstore trying to find the book with, you know, the book escort for a reading and we literally couldn't find it on the table <laughs> for like five minutes. And, um, so I realized then that the, the, the visual is very, very important. And it's not yeah. something I had spent enough time thinking about. I mean, I also, my cover is also dark. And I wanted a dark cover because, again, it was a question of mood. And also, I'm quite drawn to, to dark stories and to intense emotion. Right. So the cover, to me, was immensely appealing. But, yes, it is interesting Maybe, you know, I think about more, I can think about white covers or red covers or other color mm -hmm. covers that, because mine is also black, 
in the future think about other colors that also express passion of some sort without being visually difficult to see. In fact, I was doing um, uh, a school book fair and the room was dimly lit. It was a cocktail party. And yes, my book with a black cover was hard to spot in a dim <laughs> cocktail party. It's also not something you think about. Um, as a writer, but I do really love my cover and a joke that I make often is please judge my book by its cover because I think it's so beautiful. I think um, your cover is beautiful and arresting and I think the image of the woman on it immediately draws you in. So I don't think that, I'm actually surprised, I would think that your cover would be pretty easy to, to see. You know, it, it's interesting too because as women writers, both of our books that are historical have a woman on the cover. And I think that is something that appeals to women readers because we're looking for a story that I suppose we can put ourselves in in some way. Right. And I wonder if anyone's done a study of you know women writers and the covers they choose, the iconography versus male writers. You know, do they put, you know, if a man was writing a novel of manners in any sense, would there be a man's face on the cover? I'm right. Think of a cover. Right. You know, that just, um, I noticed when I was looking at actually at your website that someone had called you the Henry James of Asia or in Asia. I thought it was Male incredible. Henry <laughs> Speaking of novel of manners, such an incredible compliment. Um, and I, I don't know, do you like being complimented? I think compliments are a tricky business, actually. Oh, do I like being complimented? I think everyone likes being complimented, but I think that our reaction is um, can be gracious or not. It can be embarrassed or it can be, you know, I think I'd be hard put to think why anyone would not like being complimented um, unless they felt like it was insincere. But uh, no, that was a good compliment. No, it was a, it was a fabulous compliment. Um, uh but I'd actually love to hear about your process in writing your novel and how you came to it and how you decided on the era and sort of your process of, of getting it to the finished book that you have. Uh, well, I originally, to make a long story very short, I, I originally was um, an English teacher and my field uh, was 18th and 19th century novel and the novel of manner. And I got my PhD in, in 18th century uh, studies. But I think when I sat down to write a book for fun on the side, I, I think in a way, I thought that I knew almost too much about the 18th century. Certainly at that point, I wouldn't say that's true anymore. But at that point, I, I almost felt that it was, I knew too much in the sense that I couldn't get anything wrong because it was a question of expertise. And then I decided if I picked another field where I could teach myself or learn about it privately at my own pace, that it seemed less daunting. And then, of course, as I started to get interested in the Middle Ages, I just became more and more interested. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So in in effect, maybe it would have been better to write a book about the 18th century or already had one leg to stand on. But I think at the time also, while I was very drawn to the dark parts of the 18th century, you know, the Gothic mm -hmm. sort of underpinnings to the other things going on, I, I wanted something completely dark. <laughs> and I thought the Middle Ages 
would, would do it. I mean, I wanted to talk about magic alongside you know, talking about politics and philosophy and, and art and, and food and, and history and war. I wanted to talk about things like magic. And I thought the 12th century would do the trick. And also because the 12th century is, is a period of renaissance. I don't, yeah. unbeknownst like, now to most people, and which had to do with the Crusades bringing, opening up the East and all of that knowledge back. But, you know, it was the era of the birth of, of the novel, you could say, certainly of the romantic novel, of romantic, po of love poetry. I mean, there was so much going on. And I thought, I was looking for a female character about whom not a lot was known, but who still was a player in a major event of the day. And Matilda did the trick because she's someone that was almost Queen of England, actually for a few months there in the middle of a 20 year civil war, did have the throne on her, uh, the crown on her head, did have the upper hand in the war, did have the king in, in, in prison, um, and was her father's chosen heiress. But Instead, there was this sort of 20 years of, of devastation under nominally Stephen's rule. So I, I thought it was a good opportunity for me to talk about love and war. Absolutely. It's a fascinating story. And your instincts tend to be correct when you, know, when you think about what you decide to write. We never really know. But I, I think writers are, are usually right on instinctually. And so going away from your area of expertise and going into an arena where you, you weren't you know, a PhD in the subject probably helped you, you know, from your, from having too much knowledge in this way. So that's really yeah. interesting. I was, of course, before when I made this decision, I mean, the book was 20 years in the making. So I made this decision before the internet. And so when I was doing my research, it was just as you described um, in Hong Kong, being just using books just right. using archival material. Um, but it sounds like you spent, as I did, you know, you spent many hours somewhere collecting input. But then I, I see you said somewhere that you write, when you came to write the book itself, you wrote it in very short bursts. Yeah. Which is, that's so interesting to me too, because I find that I write in very long, sustained, blocks the and because of that sometimes it's hard to sit down to it because you know it's a big block of time and it must be in a way wonderful to know that if you have only an hour but it's not the task of right. you know, getting it's significant not, done right it's not really as if i can it it it's funny because i feel like i'm working on my book the entire time i'm conscious and so I think I'm working out a lot of things in my subconscious the entire time because I become quite consumed with the characters and, and their lives and what's happening to them. And it comes out in a very organic and instinctual way. But that is not to say that I can just sit down and say, oh, I have three hours today. I'm going to write. It, it sort of comes when it comes, when it's surfacing. And when, when I am feeling like I know what these characters are going to do, then, I'll, then I will sit and write a lot. And so... There's sort of a ramp up at the beginning of a project where I, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to piece it, the pieces together. As I'm sure you know, it's really hard to create something out of nothing, right? And um, so as I'm, as I'm piecing them together and as they start to come together, then I sort of ramp up and work more and more. And then there's a period of time where I'm working so much on the book. Um, 
and then I usually finish shortly thereafter. But it's it's not. I don't have good habits in that I can say I'm going to write from nine to one every day. I never write like that. I write more when I have the words in me, and that takes a long time, and I don't really know when they're going to come. So it's a little bit frustrating. Do you get up from the middle of the dinner table and run to your office and write well, something? I try, I try not to be impolite, but there are moments where I do. I say, oh, that's what she's going to do. And I do write it down right away because I found that when you don't write it down right away, like if you wake up from a dream and you have this very vivid image, I will always write it down because I learned that you never remember it in the morning or you never remember it when you, you know, when you're in the middle of something and you have to write it down. That was my number one rule because it usually ends up being something that's quite important or an image that is, is beautiful and, and good for your book. Um, and you have to honor those moments when they come and write it down. It's the, you know, the, the number one thing that I, I learned. And also what you were saying about sort of spending time in the library and pre-internet made me laugh because I, it is, it's the internet is now so all encompassing and it is so easy for a writer to say, Oh, what's that word? Or, you know, what was the song in 1984? And we can look it up and it's all at our fingertips. And I wonder if that's a good or bad thing because I feel nostalgic for the time I spent in the library. And I don't know whether that's just me being an old person or whether it is a good thing to sort of sit in a library surrounded by books and read them and page through them. The physicality of that experience is lost to us now because we're just in front of our computers all the time. I think that's true. And I think also will people's works of art become more and more similar in a way because given how those google algorithms work when you have when you're curious about in my case say i'm writing a book now set in the 14th century but i'm curious about 14th century you know recipes for stuffed goose you know the ones that come up on the top of my search are likely to be the ones that come up on the top for the next person's search who's writing a book set in the 14th century we're all going to have the same recipe (laughs) showing up in our feeds. And there was this just complete, wonderful, whimsical arbitrariness to the information we stumbled across. And I used to buy a lot of things in the Strand. You know, I'd be the the dusty bins, the, the, which, you know, books nobody else wanted for 99 cents. And they'd be, you know, something, you know, a book of medieval spells or, or, translated from the Latin by a monk and here's some 19th century, you know, reprint that no one else wanted to buy for 99 cents and and certainly was never digitized. So I still do try to use that, all those hundreds of books that I bought in, in those circumstances, because I do feel that it's more personal to me or serendipitous, the information I'm going to come up with from there. Absolutely. I still prefer reading paper books. I, I read so much that I do read on an e-reader um, just because if, I, if, for instance, I'm going on a trip, I can't bring 10 books. Um, so for that, but I do, I feel like that the act of reading is much more gratifying and I'll, I retain more when I read on paper. It's just different. And my daughter, who's 10, said the same thing to me. She doesn't want to, to read on an e-reader. She wants to read books. And, and I was actually really happy to hear that. I agree, too. One of the reasons is that I love seeing viscerally how much I have left or how much I've yeah. read. And even though it says on the bottom of the page, you know, 87 percent, it just 
<laughs> feel like I, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like I need to see the thickness of the part I've done and the thinness that's remained. Right. Um, and, and flipping back when you can't yes. read something, I can't flip back on an e-reader and, you know, I can't write in the margins. And, and um, so these things I miss. But also post-its. Yeah. Post-its, post -its, which I would have to say, are, if the number one most essential thing to the writing life. <laughs> I mean, I go through such an enormous number. I like all the different sizes for different kinds of flagging. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't use post-its. Tell me how you use post-its. Oh my goodness. Well, I use post-its in a lot of different ways. Some, it started out with there being books I didn't want to mark up. Maybe they were art books or they weren't my books. Maybe they were library books or they belonged to someone else. So I started just putting post-its for pages I wanted to come back to. And I would write the note on the post-it about what about that page was interesting. Or And then I started using them because the margins weren't big enough. And even books that belonged to me that I could mark up, my comments were too extensive. And they make post-its now lined index card post-its. I mean, they have post-its of, of enorm great enormities <laughs> that can be like little scrolls attached to and then I realized if I'm going to use a book, you know, if I use a certain book for my first novel and I'm using it for my second novel, I'm, I'm glad I did the post-it method because what I do is once I use something, I remove the post-it or put a check mark on it. And Ooh. then so if I've got post-its left over from the last book, that means these are things that are interesting that you can use in this new book because you haven't oh. used them yet. It's like a oh. way of keeping track of yeah. I use them in so many different ways. <laughs> I use them in my non-writing life, but I've not come to use them in my writing life. That's interesting. That's so it's interesting that you don't use them. I'm thinking you must be <laughs> superhuman powers. Do you write every day? Well, ideally I do, but of course I don't. Because I don't know if it counts if you go and stare at a blank screen or if you just fiddle around editing something you wrote yesterday or... Or you do a podcast instead. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> do thinking, those things count? Right. Yeah. Um, but one thing for me, I am more of a person where I say, okay, this is my block of time. And for me, it's sort of, you know, 11 or noon start time usually. Mm -hmm. And that, I have little tricks for getting in, getting in the mood. And one of which is period music, which I pop in a CD because I still have them all left over, you know, all my old CDs of 12th century or now 14th century music and that immediately sort of scrubs away the present oh I it's love that idea that is such a good idea I might have to steal that oh please oh uh, uh. I, I it, it, you're immediately not in your own place I mean I think if were I writing a book about my own time then I would have to be listening to to current music right just to get and it also not only does it put me there sort of psychologically, it also sort of releases something in me because it just goes onward, the music. And so it just unlocks something in my brain that allows me to do something that's lyrical in a way. Um, it's not good for doing your bibliography. <laughs> I can't listen to music, but I love the idea of if you say we're listening to a bunch of 80s songs, it would bring you immediately back to high school. Um, if yeah. you listen to enough of them and you know how smells can transport you back, the smells do that for me, but those are harder to sort of conjure up. Yeah. Um, so I love that idea, but being in the space as much as you can be, you know, and having those, those 
other senses help you is, is a really good idea. I did. Um, I like to do book clubs where if a book club does the novel, then I will go. And I went to one book club where it was a sort of a dinner book club. And so they had made a medieval meal, a 12th century meal, or attempted to make one, talking about sense and, and transporting you. But it was very, it, I mean, of course, it wasn't completely correct because the person did the best they could with the limited, you know, time and knowledge that they that they had. Right. But it was really fun to try to travel back in time with more yes. than one of your senses. You know, not just using right. your mind, but also your senses. But um, I, I did. Does twelfth century food taste good? <laughs> um, I think there were different. I mean, often it was quite spicy because you had to hide the age of the meat if it hadn't. Been, if it was a little past its prime or even the, the seafood. Um, so there was a lot of mustard and ginger and pepper. Uh, I like those tastes, so I suppose that's good. There were a lot of root vegetables. There were no salads, per se. There were root vegetables. Um, there was certainly all kinds of game meat. I think some of the descriptions, I mean, the descriptions are so beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, but And there are some things that don't appeal to me, to my modern palate, like things made of aspic or, you know, enormous things gilded and, and colored with, you know, um, they, they sound more beautiful to look at than good to consume. But some of the other things sound incredibly wonderful things made with I love reading about figs. food. I love reading about food. I love reading about clothing. Yeah, it's me too. I, those are such rich textural um, moments, and I and I love it when a, a writer gets them totally right. Um, yeah, it was funny. M my book, I researched it for so long over this twenty-year period that something new was discovered. Um, in about about midway through my time with the manuscript, uh, sort of historians of dress discovered that actually fashions had changed in the in the early 12th century, the period when my heroine is in her early 20s, and they decided that their knowledge about this topic was incomplete, and they added some new pieces to it. And so I went back and, and, and changed things, and I also had my character notice that fashions had changed and notice that she had to oh. make these alterations and want to make them. And because I don't think that part of human nature has has changed at all you know the desire to adorn oneself and if you had the wherewithal if you were an empress say and the the bolt of fabric were at your disposal and there were people ready to embroider everything with jewels I think you would you would get on that train if it was leaving the station so I loved finding that out um, and that's the wonderful thing about historical fiction is that I really feel like human nature has not changed at all so you know there are only so many stories and we tell them and they happen over and over again. And, you know, we have this idea of history as somehow more, more virtuous or, you know, we forget how people could be awful. They could be jealous. They could be deadly. They could be boring. And, and that's why I love historical fiction because it reminds you that, that people are the same throughout the ages. No, no, I agree. I, I think that often it's easier to see the true nature of the human story or human interaction or, or, 
or what's at stake when you're set back in, in time and place. And actually, when my son was younger, when he would play video games, violent, want to play violent video games, I would always say no to the ones that were set in the present because I thought, well, you know, Grand Theft Auto sounded horrible. I, I didn't see any <laughs> any redeeming quality in that kind of violence. But if he wanted to play a game where he was a Roman general and he had to come up with strategies to conquer territory or or, or something, any time the violence was set back in time and, and set away from me geographically, it, it somehow felt okay to me. And and I noticed that illogical move on my own part. <laughs> I mean, he was fine with historical violence. If that was the violence I was going to permit, he went with that. Right. Um, but... It's interesting to me how I thought, well, a thousand years makes it okay. Right. That the Oracle is telling you to behead your captives. Right. That's, that's funny. I hadn't thought about that. But I think you're right. I think I'd be a lot more okay with violence because in the past, um, if it were set in the past. But I don't know somehow, why I feel that way. Yeah. Somehow you see, oh, well, what was at stake was you know, their whole way of life or their, cult, you know, their cultural patrimony or you see these big values and you see, and, and so it's not about like the ugliness of human nature. It's you can sort of see those same things going on within a whole storyline almost that are, that we tell ourselves as human beings. Or it's the and, same way that we the, uh, fetishize, you know, large mansions or palaces that, you know, cost thousands of lives and and we go and see them and we marvel at them. And yet, if someone were to do that today, we would call them the worst person in the world. Right. If someone were to build a palace like the Taj Mahal in India now, you know, what, what would that, that wouldn't, that would not be considered a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's true. It's, yeah. it's true. But it was, it was someone else's monumental act of ego in the past or love, I guess you could say. But, you know, it's still a monumental act of ego. You know, it's, it's interesting too, which brings us back to something we were talking about before, which is when we're living our own lives with our own emotional arcs and our own intense relationships, and then we're trying to live the life or tell a story of another life, another person engaged to the utmost. That's interesting, too, being two places at once. Or you almost become your character, your main character, or at least I feel that way. So you, you, you're living, you're making your own choices, you have your own relationships, and then you've got her that you're also engaged in right. together. Or, I mean, you have more power over the imaginary one. I guess that's the pleasure of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's like being two places at once. Yeah. I have not actually felt, I don't feel like my characters. I feel like I, I am shepherding them, but I don't feel any kinship with or oneness with them. Um, so that's interesting. Um, that's interesting too. I don't feel that I am my characters more than I'm playing that character's role. And so I'm somehow, it's like I'm the actress that's been chosen to, and so I have to play it up. Right. I think a lot of people do feel kinship with their protagonists, though, because obviously, the, you know, the, the, the novel that hews very closely to your own life is very common. So I think that more people than not probably would feel that a lot of affinity with their, with their main character. I guess I feel like, were I this woman, were I faced with these choices, this is how I would behave, while still knowing 
that I am not she. Right. But I guess as a reader, though, reader, though I play that the same role with the main character. It's, it's interesting, all this, the detritus of the fact that we live in a different time from the time we started in. I mean, time moves so much more quickly now than it used to. I think if you were born in the 12th century, you died in the 12th century then. And probably that was true if you were born in 1950 and died in, in 2000. You felt like you lived in one time. But I almost feel that we don't. Yeah. I was telling, it's dizzying everything that's happened. And um, my daughter was asking me a question about 20 years. And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, you've, I, we have no idea what it's going to be like because everything is changing so fast, yeah. including how people read books or, you know, I, you know, you had mentioned something about um, how people read books today because of all the internet things. And I just think that people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And, um, you know, I, I know that books will always have their audience, but it makes me sad that, you know, that we're, culture is being consumed in ever diminishing moments. Yeah. One thing that when, e when e email first became preponderant, I actually thought it was a great thing that we were back to writing letters to one another and we stopped talking on the phone, which I had always hated anyway. Right. But letters, which you could think over and edit and, and really just fine tune them so that they express exactly what you wanted to express. That I thought was a wonderful coming around. Yeah. I'll live in the epistolary novel. And, and then, and now of course it's changed again and we sort of relate to one another with this series of hieroglyphics. <laughs> um, but Again, even when people are on social media, it's the same stories that they're telling about reality TV stars, about celebrities. About, it's the same thing. Whom, whom do they love? Who do they no longer love? Who's in a, a cat fight with whom? I mean, it's all the same love, revenge, war, ambition, perversity. All the same human stories are, are out there in the more visual medium. And I feel that people are writing so much. They have to write very concise and cogent and articulate emails for work. And there's a certain kind of vernacular in social media that's funny and irreverent that, that people have to master. So they're, they're, people are definitely writing. They're just writing in a completely different way. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think, I think in the English, the class, you know, kids in high school when they go to English class and they read and, and analyze critically and then write, those still are the skills that right. are needed and that are part and parcel of, of a good education. You could, I, I think you could make the argument, argument that calculus is not, not nearly <laughs> as important, um, but everyone needs to be able to write a witty Instagram caption. Yeah. And you learn that in English class. Right? That's right. So, but I just, I hope that my kids, I mean, they don't read as much as I would like them to, and I'm always reading. Um, but I hope that that will never get lost. This, the beauty of spending an afternoon with a wonderful book that sort of transports you to a place that you had never imagined. And that's why I think you and I, we read and we write, right? Because it's that experience that we want to replicate somehow. Yes. And we, we go somewhere in our imagination and we but we find ourselves there too. That's what's so wonderful about 
about it. I mean, I think we we're taken on this journey and we get to be be there and 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 be a part of that human story in another place. It's very cathartic to sort of yeah. this other place to go as a little break from yes. That's your the, real life. the beauty of a good book, right? It completely transports you, which is what I've always found ever since I was a kid and I wanted to be a writer because of that experience. Did you always want to be a writer? I, I think I decided also as a very young child, I, I think because that was my greatest pleasure. I loved escaping to a world I was more interested in than the one um, where I squabbled with my siblings. <laughs> but actually, I think it was also because I, my parents had a boat and we, I was often on this boat for much of the summer and I didn't like boats. I don't like boats. I was afraid of sharks and tsunamis and jellyfish and um, icebergs, I imagine, you know, would shipwreck us, all kinds of things. And so I escaped with reading and I would read a book a day. And I remember one summer, my mother got the whole entire Nancy Drew series. There were 67 books. Oh. And I read, and she put them <laughs> under my bed, and I read one a day. And then oh. I, that was where, so I didn't have to be on this boat trip that everyone else was on. <laughs> I was in Nancy, on my Nancy Drew trip. That's how I became a reader. And I think I became a writer for the same reason, because I, you know, telling stories, you get to go there, you get to tell exactly the story. I mean, you're your own first reader, right? You're telling exactly the story you want to read yourself as a writer. Right. The execution is harder than the idea, for sure. <laughs> that is true. Um, thank you so much, Janice, for agreeing to do this. Oh, it was such a pleasure. It was really fun to talk to you about books. It was great. And uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure.